Hello there. Welcome to a New York Yankee in the heart of Dixie, Big Apple version. This is your host, Oscar Bronx. Well, today was interesting. And by that, I mean painful and exasperating, but not altogether hopeless, I guess. Live to fight another day, right? Anyway. As you know, Dr. Jerry's been easing my mother out of her sedated state, and today it paid some dividends. She seems moderately alert, so he tests her strength, balance, reflexes, that sort of thing. Then he asks her a few questions to see how good her memory and cognitive abilities are. She gives him her old, screw you, you're not the boss of me look. (laughs) So, didn't make much headway with that. He changed her urinary catheter bag to one she could wear on her leg that allows her to walk around, so I offer her my arm and walk her around the place, greeting people, introducing her, trying to sound chipper and cheerful. We sit down in the lounge area for a bit, get her a cup of coffee and a Danish, watch some TV. She seems to be getting steadily better, but it takes her a good while before she seems ready to engage in any kind of conversation or personal interaction. And when it happens, it happens all of a sudden. I had been chatting away the whole time, telling her who I was and all that, repeating it again and again, and suddenly she looks at me and she says, Oscar? I say, yeah, Mom, it's me, Oscar. And she turns to the others and yells, my lucky charm is here. And she walks over to this staff member, and she lifts this Sharpie pen out of his shirt pocket, grabs the clipboard he was holding, and writes Falco in huge letters on the form. Then she goes over and tags the wall with Falco, and I chase her around as she's trying to autograph things and people, and I grab the Sharpie from her and try to drag her over to the table, and she's doing these deep curtain call kind of bows and curtsies. And I put my hands on her cheeks and make her look at me, and I say, Mom, settle down, okay? And she looks at me, you know, like she's paying attention. And I say, Mom, do you know where you are? And she says, Yes, I know where I am. And I say, Where? In jail. No, Mom, you're not in jail. You're in a nursing home. Look around. She says, what's the difference? And I can tell she's got her old sarcasm back. I say, do you know why you're here? And she says, because you abandoned me. And we just stare at each other for a few seconds. Then she says, why are you here after all these years? And I figure I'll just be straight up with her. And I say, I met a woman, Mom. I fell in love. I want to get married. And she just laughs. She says, that's not in the script. You can't improvise your lines. Not on this stage. This is my stage. And I say, there's no script, Mom. And this is not a stage. This is a nursing home. Look around you. And I reach down and pat the bag strapped to a leg. This? This is a urinary catheter, Mom. You pee into this bag. And she shrugs and says, that's a prop. It's not a prop, Mom. It's real. And I take her hand and place it on the tube that leads up into a body. See, it's real. And she shoves my hand away. I know what it is, you ungrateful child. You always hated me. And then she gets this glum look and sits down at the table. I sit down next to her. I say, I'm sorry, Mom. And I immediately regret it. I mean, she's supposed to be the one apologizing to me, for God's sake. I say, look, I need to talk to you. And she says, yeah, well, I need a smoke. They don't allow smoking in here, Mom. She says, you want to talk? Get me a cigarette or take a hike. I say, all right, I'll go get you some smokes. When I get back, we can go into the courtyard and talk. Deal? 
And she says in this tone of utter disgust, Ah, such a sweet boy. What, is it Mother's Day? So I say, stay here. I'll be right back. And I go out. There's a little convenience store a few blocks away, and I walk down there. I buy a pack of cigarettes and a lighter, and I walk back to the nursing home. She's not in the common room, so I check her room. Not there either. I go to the double doors that lead from the common room out into the little courtyard, and I see her out there, standing by the courtyard wall, looking out into the alley. And she's wearing that other mother costume I told you about. The black coat, the pretty dress, the wig. My heart sinks. But I screw up my courage. I step out into the courtyard. I walk up behind her. She says, I couldn't find my music box. Then I remember I had let Mrs. Little play it the evening before. She probably still had it. I pull out a cigarette and light it for her. Then I hand it to her. She takes a long drag. Then she says, don't you remember your line? I say, I'm not your lighthouse, Mom. I'm not your lucky charm. Never was. She says, you can say that again. If you were, I wouldn't be here, would I, you worthless little shit? I had promised myself I wouldn't let her get under my skin, so I don't say anything. Finally, she says, why are you here? And I say, I'm here to see if I can forgive you. And she just busts out laughing. Not real laughter, just this mean, sarcastic cackle. And then it turns into this coughing jag. When it's over, I say, That's right. I'm here to try to forgive you. She says, Then just say your line and get off the stage. I say, No. Not gonna do that. I've gotta feel it. You've gotta give me some reason to feel it. It's got to come from the heart. And she spits and says, method acting, crap. I say, you hurt people, Mom. She says, who did I ever hurt? I say, everybody in the Falco Five. Look, I don't give a rat's ass about Hans. He deserved whatever he got. But Plato? Plato was a good kid, and you drove him over the edge. And what about Laura? What you did to her was unforgivable. And she yells at me, what do you know? You know nothing. Every last one of those people was suicidal when they came to me. I saved their worthless lives. I gave them a reason to live. They owed me, and so do you, you ungrateful little shit. I brought you into this world. You don't bring a child into the world just to be a prop in your own selfish little drama, I say. I was not a lucky charm, and you were not Falco, the greatest actress of all. That was all bullshit, a hoax, a lie. It wasn't true, any of it. Oh, she says. And what's true, Oscar? Hmm? Tell me. I say, you're my mother. I'm your son. You should have loved me for that. You didn't have to fake it. You didn't have to wear some phony costume and just act like you loved me. You should have found the natural love a mother has for a child, and you should have brought it out, she says. And you believe I had such genuine motherly love in me? I say, yes, I still do. In that case, she says, and she takes off her wig, you need to call the bitch of Broadway because you just nominated me for a Lifetime Achievement Award. And she takes one last drag on a cigarette, drops the smoldering butt into my shirt pocket, turns, and walks back into the building. So, that was my day. How was yours? Anyway, before today, the last time I saw her in that other mother costume was after the Son of Sam thing, after Hans and Lenny punished me. 
I told you about the other two times it happened. First when I was six, then when I was eleven, with the Queen of Hearts thing. After Son of Sam, and after my punishment, when my mother donned her other mother costume and went on her pier walk, Hans and Lenny made sure they went with us as Plato and I followed her. Hans probably suspected what was going through my head and wanted to make sure I didn't act on it, and I didn't. But I damn sure let that murder-suicide fantasy scream through my head even as I perched up on the railing and said, I'll be your lighthouse, Mom. I tell you, that dark fantasy became my constant companion in the three years or so I remained with them. And though the urge to act on it became almost unbearable, I kept it bottled up. The night after that last pier walk, I overheard Hans and my mother talking. Hans was trying to convince her to get rid of me. But she said, Falconetti was 35 when she got a big break. That's 1981 for me. If it doesn't happen by then, do what you want. Until then, keep them here. And sure enough, they treated me like a prisoner. Always kept a watch on me. Wouldn't let me go to the library by myself. Locked me in my bedroom at night. For a while, they wouldn't let Plato watch me since he and I had, you know, we'd always been pals. I did everything I could to get them to trust me and loosen up. I worked hard. Chores, play production jobs, you name it. I loved to work. And I learned to take advantage of Hans. He liked fine cuisine, and he was a good cook, a real chef. But he was so busy with everything else, he never had time for it. So for a long time, that chore fell on Laura. But her cooking was awful, and Hans just hated it. So I suggested to Hans that he could teach me how to cook his favorite meals. I'd probably do a better job than Laura. He hated her cooking so much, he agreed. He set aside one or two times a week to give me a cooking lesson. And that's how I started what would later become my first actual career. For some reason, after the Son of Sam thing, my mother seemed to direct more of her time to her dramatic therapy stuff, and most of that was directed at Laura. At the time, I had no idea what they did with these sessions because they did it back in the playhouse, and I was always under guard elsewhere. But as they started to trust me more, they started to let Plato stand watch over me instead of Lenny. They had him stand guard over at the playhouse. And it was because of this that I got to see Plato's descent into insanity. Here's the thing. When I was younger, I used to think Plato was the best actor in the Falco Five. He could do all kinds of accents, all kinds of characters. And when he got into a character, I mean, he really got into character. Plato disappeared. It was spooky how good he was at it. Anyway, after Plato was assigned to watch over me, I started to watch him very closely. In part, I thought I needed to do that if I was ever going to escape this Falco Five prison. But I think in larger measure, it was because I truly liked and cared for Plato, and I could see something was wrong. I didn't know what to call it at the time, but he had some kind of identity disorder. When I was little, I thought he had fun acting. But now that I'm watching him, I can see that getting into character was like when an alcoholic falls off the wagon and goes on a binge. He doesn't want to, but he can't help it. I'll never forget the first time I saw through the mask of the character he was putting on. It was like he was terrified that he couldn't take the mask off, that he'd actually become the character, and it scared him because he was losing himself, and because he couldn't really control what 
or who he was becoming, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But my mother totally ignored Plato, so after a while, I felt responsible for him too. Anyway, the stuff with Plato and Laura finally cracked things open for me. Okay, it's 1980. I'm 17 years old. I've determined that I have to find a way to get the hell out of Dodge before 1981 since that's the year Falco had set as my last chance to be her lucky charm. And I had decided what kind of occupation I wanted to get into to support myself, too. I wanted to work as a cook on ships. Why ships? I'll tell you why. Those times when I had to stand on the pier railing and play the lighthouse for my other mother, I used to see ships. And for some reason, they always seemed to be heading out to sea, away from New York and the Falco Five. That's what I wanted. One day, Plato and I are out running an errand, and Plato points to this building, and he tells me it's a maritime union hall, where guys go to get a job on a ship. So I ask him, what does it take to get such a job? And he said he didn't know. I wanted to go in and find out, but Plato said Falco wouldn't want us to do that, and we went home. But the seed of a plan was planted in my brain that day. Anyway, 1980. I had just turned 17. I'm in the kitchen. The only other ones in the apartment with me are Laura and Plato. Hans and my mother are back in the studio. Lenny's standing guard at the playhouse entrance down in the alley. Plato's supposed to be watching me, but he spent all night in one of his manic character episodes, so he's snoozing in an armchair. Laura walks up to the kitchen door. I say, hey, Laura, how's tricks? And she giggles and says, tricks are good. So I ask her if she'd like a cup of coffee. That's another thing I could make real good coffee. Everybody liked my coffee. And she says yes and sits down at the kitchen table. So I serve her her coffee. And I say, you're looking good. And she was. I had to give my mother some credit. Whatever it was she did with her treatment seemed to be working. I mean, Laura's still her fragile self. But compared to the virtually catatonic state she was in with the Son of Sam thing, she was appearing almost chipper. You gotta understand, I had always been under strict instructions not to be nosy about the treatments my mother gave to Laura and the others. My mother and Hans always made it clear it was a private matter and none of my business. But I was curious. And so I said, well, whatever it is you've been doing back there seems to agree with you. And Laura says, thank you, Oscar. I'm not as afraid of people anymore, of men. And I'm trying to figure out what that might mean. And she says, Falco is going to make me a star. And I say, a star, huh? That's great. So they're writing a play for you, lead role? And she's sipping her coffee and kind of playing with the cup, rubbing her fingertip around the edge. And she says, nope, movies. And I say, movies? Wow, that sounds interesting. Tell me about it. And she smiles and kind of blushes and looks down in a coffee cup and she says, you know I can't tell you about it. And she hesitates. Then she says, but maybe I can show you someday. And I look at her and she's got this seductive look on her face. And I'm like shocked. Here's a woman I've known all my life as a fragile, painfully shy wallflower who once told me she was intimidated by first graders. And she was, what, coming on to me? She was supposed to be like a spinster aunt or something. We were family, or as close as our group ever came to that. So I changed the subject. I asked her, so how's the babysitting gig going? 
See, my mother and Hans started this part-time babysitting gig for Laura. I assumed it was part of a treatment to get her among other people, you know, reaching out into the world, getting out of the cocoon. The methadone clinic downstairs got a good number of young mothers who were strung out, and Falco and Hans figured those women could use a break once in a while. So they offered Laura as a babysitter. It was one of the few things the Falco Five ever did that I thought did some actual good, you know? Good for the junkie moms and good for Laura. I mean, I don't suspect they were making any money off of it, just, you know, it was charity. And so I ask her, how's the babysitting gig going? And she's quiet for a minute, staring into a coffee. And she says, babies can be stars too. And then, I don't like it when they cry. And then she finishes her coffee and says, well, I have to go. And she leaves. I look out the kitchen window and I see her walk down the alley and go in the playhouse door. And I'm standing there in the kitchen thinking, what the hell just happened? And I spend some time with my kitchen chores, thinking, and it's starting to bother me. And suddenly, I just decide, I'm going to find out what's going on. I look in the common room. Plato's still snoozing in the armchair. I look out the kitchen window. Lenny's standing guard in the alley. I try to figure out how to get past him, and I think of something. So I load up a box with some food and drinks. I tiptoe past Plato and go outside, down the alley to where Lenny's standing. And he says, you're early. Where's Plato? Because he knows I'm not supposed to be out on my own. I say, I got him stirring something on the stove. Here, take this food up to the others. I got to get back to the kitchen so Plato doesn't burn it. And I turn and run back toward the apartment. Lenny watches me till I turn into the doorway. But then I stop and peek back around. He's gone into the building. I run back down there and go inside and hide. When Lenny comes back downstairs, he heads outside to his post. I run up the stairs to the second floor. I walk down the corridor, trying not to make any noise. The box of food sitting on the floor outside the film studio room, where Lenny always leaves it. The door to the studio has a big glass window in it, but it's covered with a sheet of cardboard taped on the inside so I can't see in. I can hear muffled voices, but I can't tell what they're saying. There's a transom above the door, though, like they used to have in those old high-ceilinged buildings back in the day. In the transom is a pane of glass, a window, uncovered. Down the hall a little ways is a chair and a stepladder, leaning against the wall. So I go to the stepladder, and I set it up outside the door. Then I climb up, and I look in. I see Laura. She's on her knees. I see three men standing around her. I don't know who they are. They're all naked. There's some studio light shining this bright light on them. And there's Hans with his movie camera, shooting as Laura does things to those men. I, I don't see my mother in the room. And I'm, I'm just dizzy with rage. As I stumble down from the stepladder, Plato comes running up. And he starts hissing at me to come with him, that we're going to get in trouble. He grabs my wrist. I jerk away. I grab the chair sitting against the wall, and I swing it with all my might like a baseball bat right through the glass pane in the door. I hear a voice yell, Cut! Plato looks in the room. I see something click in him, like a light switch when he falls into a character. He reaches through the broken window, unlocks the door, and goes in. I don't know what character he's in, but he's got murder in his eyes. I run downstairs.
I yell at Lenny, go to Laura, she needs you. And Lenny turns to run upstairs, and I just run. I don't know. Maybe I should have gone up and helped Lenny and played a lacem waste. But I didn't. All I had in me was the urge to run. To escape. I run for blocks. Hell, I didn't even know which way. North, south, east, west. Sometimes circling around blocks. Finally, I run past that Siemens Union building that Plato showed me. And I stopped. I go inside. And I just sit there for a long time. Finally, somebody asked me what I want. I tell them I want to go to sea. They give me instructions on how to get Siemens papers from the Coast Guard. How to get in the Union, all that stuff. But I need a birth certificate. I go back outside. I start walking back to the apartment. I see this old baseball bat lying in the weeds, in a vacant lot. I pick it up, carry it with me. I have no idea how I am going to get my birth certificate. I'm hoping that Lenny and Plato have beaten Hans to a pulp and taken a sledgehammer to that whole scene. But I know Hans and my mother well enough not to take that for granted. Speaking of which, I always knew that Hans was a scumbag, but as much as I hated my mother, I always thought she was above that. New York was full of porn shops, but she never showed any interest in that stuff. She was an artist. She was Falconetti. But the voice that yelled cut when I smashed the window, that was my mother's voice. Anyway, I start back to the apartment, trying to think of some plan to go in and steal my birth certificate. I may be four blocks away when I see Hans and Lenny. Together, my heart sinks. Somehow my mother got to Lenny, convinced him not to go ape, probably convinced him as usual that what happened to Laura was my fault. And Hans points one way and gives Lenny a little shove and Lenny goes that way. They're looking in alleys and windows and doorways. I know what they're looking for. Me. So I watch them. Lenny goes one way, Hans the other. I follow Hans. He goes down this dead-end alley. I follow him in. When he gets about halfway down, I run up behind him and hit him in the knee with the bat. He falls down and rolls over on his back. I raise the bat like I'm going to bash him in the head. He raises his hands. He's squealing, no, don't hit me. His eyes roll bugged out. He's scared. I say, shut up. You call Lenny and I'll crush your skull. He's all whimpering, asking me what I want. I tell him I want my birth certificate. And he says, yeah, okay, sure, it's yours. You can have it. Just take it and get out of our lives. Isn't that what you want? Sure, I'll go get it for you. Just, just don't hurt me. Let me up. And of course, it's obvious to me that's not going to work. I let him go. He's not coming back with a birth certificate. He's coming back with Lenny. And I can't very well frog march him down busy city streets back to the apartment. I mean, all I've got is a child's baseball bat. So I'm trying to figure out how to handle this when a car horn honks from out in the street and I make the mistake of turning my head to look. And that's when Hans kicks me right in the nuts. I double over and in two seconds I'm on my back and that sleazy pervert is on top of me, holding a straight razor against my throat and laughing like a rabid hyena. His eyes are bulging, his face is all red, he's slobbering and squealing, and I swear to God I'm afraid he's going to lose it and kill me right in that alley. And he starts groaning on about what disgusting things he's going to do to me for my punishment. And then he laughs again, this screechy pervert cackle, and he says, You want your birth certificate, huh? 
Well, you can't have it. You know why? Because you don't have one. You don't have a birth certificate, little Oscar. And do you want to know why you don't have a birth certificate, huh? You really want to know? I've been wanting to tell you this forever. Your mother has a secret. And he sticks his face right in mine, and he's grinding his groin on me, and his face is this high-pitched maniac squeal. And he says, you want to know the secret of your birth? Are you ready? And he opens his mouth to laugh, and suddenly there's something metal sticking in his mouth, and he gags on it and sits up. And then I see somebody's there behind him. I don't even know who it is at first because he's so completely in character. It's Plato, and he's sticking the barrel of a gun in Hans's mouth. And then I realize. It must be the gun we got from that cop almost three years before in that Son of Sam thing. Plato says, toss the razor. And Hans removes the straight razor from my throat and tosses it away. Plato shoves him off me and pushes him back against a brick wall. But he doesn't take the gun out of Hans's mouth. He's got it jammed so far in, I'm expecting him to suffocate the guy. Plato's acting real calm, like some cold-blooded mafia assassin who's done this sort of thing a dozen times before. And Plato says to him, Here's what we're going to do, Hans, you and me. We're going to go back to your office, and you're going to get that kid a birth certificate and whatever documents he'll need to get his Siemens papers. And Hans is trying to say something, but he can't make clear words with the gun barrel jammed in his mouth. And Plato says real calm, I don't care if he has one or not. You're a forger. This is what you do. How many times have I had to listen to you brag about how you're the best forger in New York? You're going to make him one, and you're going to use your contacts, all those pervs you know in the right places, to make sure it's all official. Got it? And you're going to do it quick, and you're going to do it right, or I'm going to kill Falco and turn you into the cops so the cons in Sing Sing can take care of you. They know how to deal with pervs and child molesters, believe me. And he gets up, and he makes Hans stand. Before they leave, Plato reaches into Hans's pocket and takes his wallet. He hands it to me. He says, my guess there's enough cash in there to tide you over for a while. Find yourself a place to stay the night. Get something to eat. Tomorrow, meet me at the Siemens Union. I'll bring the papers and some clothes. And then he marches Hans out of the alley. Sure enough, Plato met me at the Siemens Union Hall the next day and gave me what I needed. He shook my hand and said, Take care. And that was the last time I ever saw Plato. A year later, when I got off my first ship, that was after I met Manny, I saw my mother once. I basically told her what I thought of her and how I could never forgive her, and I left for good. Now look at me on a forgiveness quest. Life's funny. Anyway, when I left the nursing home this afternoon, I got a call from Mickey, my private investigator. He told me he found something important about my background and that I'd have to come down to Norfolk, Virginia to see it. I'm thinking, Norfolk, Virginia? What the hell? I don't even know anybody there. I once got off a ship there when it went into the shipyard for repairs, but I went straight back to New York. I didn't even spend the night there. I sailed with a couple of guys from Norfolk, but I didn't know them well and didn't keep in contact with them. I told him, Mickey, 
Can't you just tell me what it is over the phone? He said, No, I'd have to see it with my own eyes. Well, I trust him. Plus, I could use a break before I go back to try to finish this thing with my mother. So, I guess I'll get up early, drive down and see what he's found before I come back here. I'll let you know what happens. Guess I'll sign off for now. This is Oscar Bronx, host of the podcast, A New York Yankee in the Heart of Dixie. Check us out at littlewhitecabin.com. Till then, as my old friend Manny Conrad would say, see you in the funny papers. Peace.